39. S. True. Though constantly reprinted, survive principally through the exceeding vitality of the Bronte tradition. As a hymn writer she still has a place in most religious communities. Emily is great alike as a novelist and as a poet. Her old stoic and last lines are probably the finest achievement of poetry that any woman has given to English literature. Her novel Wilfring Heights stands alone as a monument of intensity owing nothing to tradition, nothing to the achievement of earlier writers. It was a thing apart, passionate, and forgettable, haunting in its grimness, its gray melancholy. Among women writers Emily Bronte has a sure and certain place for all time. As a poet or maker of verse Charlotte Bronte is undistinguished, but there are passages of pure poetry of great magnificence in her four novels, and particularly in Villet. The novels Jane Eyre and Villet will always command attention whatever the future of English fiction, by virtue of their intensity, their independence, their rough individuality. The Life of Charlotte Bronte, by Mrs. Gaskell, was first published in 1857, owing to the many controversial questions it aroused, as to the identity of Lowood in Jane Eyre with Cohen Bridge School, as to the relations of Branwell Bronte with his employer's wife, as to the supposed peculiarities of Mr. Bronte, and certain other minor points. The third edition was considerably changed. The life has been many times reprinted, but may be read in its most satisfactory form in the Howarth edition 1902, issued by the original publishers, Smith, Elder and Company. To this edition are attached a great number of letters written by Miss Bronte to her publisher, George Smith. The first new material supplied to supplement Mrs. Gaskell's life was contained in Charlotte Bronte, a monograph, by T. Wimis Reed 1877. This book inspired Mr. A.C. Swinburne to issue separately a forcible essay on Charlotte and Emily Bronte, under the title of A Note on Charlotte Bronte 1877. A further collection of letters written by Miss Bronte was contained in Charlotte Bronte and Her Circle, by Clement Shorter 1896, and interesting details can be gathered from the life of Charlotte Bronte, by Augustine Beryl 1887, The Brontes in Ireland, by William Wright, D.D. 1893, Charlotte Bronte and Her Sisters, by Clement Shorter 1906, and The Bronte Society Publications, edited by Butlerwood 1895-1907. Miss A. Mary F. Robinson Madame Ducklow wrote a separate biography of Emily Bronte in 1883, and an essay in her Grands Ecrivains du Tre Manche, The Brontes, Life and Letters, by Clement Shorter 1907, contains the whole of C. Bronte's letters in chronological order, C.K.S.B.R.L.D.E., a town of the province of Catania, Sicily, on the western slopes of Mount Etna, 24 meters N.N.W. of Catania direct, and 34 meters by rail. Pop. 1901-20.366. It was founded by the Emperor Charles V. The town, with an extensive estate which originally belonged to the monastery of Maniasu Manias, was granted, as a dukedom, to Nelson by Ferdinand Ivy, of Naples in 1799. Bronx. The, formerly a district comprising several towns in Westchester County, New York. USA now since 1898 the northernmost of the five boroughs of New York City QV. Several settlements in the Bronx were made by the English and the Dutch between 1640 and 1650. Bronze, an alloy formed wholly or chiefly of copper and tin in variable proportions. The word has been etymologically connected with the same root as appears in brown, but according to M. P. E. Berthelo Lochimio Moyen Age it is a place name derived from A's Brandusianum Sif. Pliny, Nat, Hist, Shi, Chapter X, Sec.45. 
Specular Optima Pug Majors Fuerunt Brundushana. Stano et Ermixtis. A Greek Mizzab about the 11th century in the Library of Street Marks, Venice, contains V.04P.0640 the form Greek, Brontijan, and gives the composition of the alloy as one pound of copper with two ounces of tin. The product obtained by adding tin to copper is more fusible than copper and thus better sweet for casting, it is also harder and less malleable. A soft bronze or gun metal is formed with 16 parts of copper to a one of tin, and a harder gun metal such as was used for bronze ordnance, when the proportion of tin is about doubled. The steel bronze of Colonel Franchukashi's 1811-1881 consisted of copper alloyed with 8 of tin, the tenacity and hardness being increased by cold rolling. Bronze containing about 7 parts of copper to a 1 of tin is hard, brittle and sonorous, and can be tempered to take a fine edge. Bell metal varies considerably in composition, from about 3 to 5 parts of copper to a 1 of tin. In speculum metal there are to 221 two parts of copper to a one of tin. Statuary bronze may contain from 80 to 90 of copper, the residue being tin, or tin with zinc and lead in various proportions. The bronze used for the British and French copper coinage consists of 95 copper, 4 tin and 1 zinc. Many copper tin alloys employed for machinery bearings contain a small proportion of zinc, which gives increased hardness. Anti-friction metals, also used in bearings are copper tin alloys in which the amount of copper is small and there is antimony in addition. Of this class an example is, Babbitt's metal. Invented by Isaac Babbitt 1799-1862, it originally consisted of 24 parts of tin, 8 parts of antimony and 4 parts of copper, but in later compositions for the same purpose the proportion of tin is often considerably higher. Bronze is improved in quality and strength when fluxed with phosphorus. Alloys prepared in this way and known as phosphor bronze, may contain only about one of phosphorus in the ingot, reduced to a mere trace after casting, but their value is nevertheless enhanced for purposes in which a hard strong metal is required, as for pump plungers, valves, the bushes of bearings, and see, bronze again is improved by the presence of manganese in small quantity, and various grades of manganese bronze, in some of which there is little or no tin but a considerable percentage of zinc are extensively used in mechanical engineering. Alloys of copper with aluminium, though often nearly or completely destitute of tin, are known as aluminium bronze, and are valuable for their strength and the resistance they offer to corrosion. By the addition of a small quantity of silicon the tensile strength of copper is much increased, a sample of such silicon bronze, used for telegraph wires, on analysis was found to consist of 99.94 of copper, 0.03 of tin and traces of iron and silicon, the bronze jar, Greek, chocos, lat, A's of classical antiquity consisted chiefly of copper, alloyed with one or more of the metals, zinc, tin, lead and silver, in proportions that varied as times changed, or according to the purposes for which the alloy was required, among bronze remains the copper is found to vary from 67 to 95. From the analysis of coins it appears that for their bronze coins the Greeks adhered to an alloy of copper and until 400 BC after which time they used also lead with increasing frequency. Silver is rare in their bronze coins. The Romans also used lead as an alloy in their bronze coins, but gradually reduced the quantity. And under Caligula, Nero, Vespasian and Domitian, coined pure copper coins, afterwards they reverted to the mixture of lead. So far the words Greek. Chocos and A's may be translated as bronze. Originally, no doubt, Greek, Chocos was the name for pure copper. 
it is so employed by Homer, who calls it Greek, Erythros red, Greek, Aethops glittering, Greek, Phenos shining, terms which apply only to copper, but instead of its following from this that the process of alloying copper with other metals was not practiced in the time of the poet, or was unknown to him, the contrary would seem to be the case from the passage Iliad's VA. 474 where he describes Hephaestus as throwing into his furnace copper, tin, silver and gold to make the shield of Achilles, so that it is not always possible to know whether when he uses the word Greek, chocos he means copper pure or alloyed. Still more difficult is it to make this distinction when we read of the mythical dactyls of Ida in Crete or the Alchins or Cyclopes being acquainted with the smelting of Greek, chocos. It is not, however, likely that later Greek writers, who knew bronze in its true sense, and called it Greek, chocos, would have employed this word without qualification for objects which they had seen unless they had meant it to be taken as bronze. When Pausanias Eia, 17, 6 speaks of a statue, one of the oldest figures he had seen of this material, made of separate pieces fastened together with nails, we understand him to mean literally bronze, the more readily since there exist very early figures and utensils of bronze so made, for the use of bronze in art, see metalwork, bronze age, the name given by archaeologists to that stage in human culture, intermediate between the stone and iron ages, when weapons, utensils and implements were, as a general rule, made of bronze, the term has no absolute chronological value, but marks a period of civilization through which it is believed that most races passed at one time or another, the, finds, of stone and bronze, of bronze and iron, and even of stone and iron implements together in tumuli and sepulchral mounds, suggest that in many countries the three stages in man's progress overlapped, from the similarity of types of weapons and implements of the period found throughout Europe a relatively synchronous commencement has been inferred for the Bronze Age in Europe, fixed by most authorities at between 2000 BC to 1800 BC, but it must have been earlier in some countries, and is certainly known to have been later in others, while the Mexicans and Peruvians were still in their Bronze Age in recent times. Not a few archaeologists have denied that there ever was a distinct Bronze Age. They have found their chief argument in the fact that weapons of these ages have been found side by side in prehistoric burial places, but when it is admitted that the ages must have overlapped, it is fairly easy to understand the mixed, finds, the beginning, the prevalence and duration of the Bronze Age in each country would have been ordered by the accessibility of the metals which form the alloy, thus in some lands bronze may have continued to be a substance of extreme value until the Iron Age was reached and in tumuli in which more than one body was interred, as was frequently the case, it would only be with the remains of the richer tenants of the tomb that the more valuable objects would be placed, their island moreover, much reason to believe that sepulchral mounds were opened from age to age and fresh interments made, and in such a practice would be found a simple explanation of the mixing of implements, another curious fact has been seized on by those who argue against the existence of a bronze age, among all the finds examined in Europe there is a most remarkable absence of copper implements. The sources of tin in Europe are practically restricted to Cornwall and Saxony. How then are we to explain on the one hand the apparent stride made by primitive man when from a Stone Age civilization he passed to a comparatively advanced metallurgical skill? On the other, how account for a comparatively synchronous commencement of bronze civilization when one at least of the metals needed for the alloy would have been naturally difficult of access? If not unknown to many races, the answer is that there can be but little doubt that the knowledge of bronze came to the races of Europe from outside, 
either by the Phoenicians or by the Greeks metallurgy was taught to men who no sooner recognized the nature and malleable properties of copper than they learned that by application of heat a substance could be manufactured with tin far better sweet to their purposes. Copper would thus have been but seldom used in alloy, and the relatively synchronous appearance of bronze in Europe, and the scanty, fines, of copper implements, are explained. We may conclude then that there was a Bronze Age in most countries, that it was the direct result of increasing intercommunication of races and the spread of commerce, and that the discovery of metals was due to information brought to Stone Age man in Europe by races which were already skillful metallurgists. The Bronze Age in Europe is characterized by weapons, utensils and implements, distinct in design and size from those in use in the preceding or succeeding stage of man's civilization. Moreover and this has been employed as an argument in favor of the foreign origin of the knowledge of bronze all the V.04P.0641 objects in one part of Europe are identical in pattern and size with those found in another part. The implements of the Bronze Age include swords, awls, knives, gouges, hammers, daggers and arrowheads. A remarkable confirmation of the theory that the Bronze Age culture came from the east is to be found in the patterns of the arms, which are distinctly oriental while the handles of swords and daggers are so narrow and short as to make it unlikely that they would be made for use by the large-handed races of Europe. The Bronze Age is also characterized by the fact that cremation was the mode of disposal of the dead, whereas in the Stone Age burial was the rule. Barrows and sepulchral mounds strictly of the Bronze Age are smaller and less imposing than those of the Stone Age, besides varied and beautiful weapons, frequently exhibiting high workmanship, amulets, coronets, Diadems of solid gold, and vases of elegant form and ornamentation in gold and bronze are found in the barrows. These latter appear to have been used as tribal or family cemeteries. In Denmark as many as 70 deposits of burnt bones have been found in a single mound, indicating its use through a long succession of years. The ornamentation of the period is as a rule confined to spirals, bosses and concentric circles. What is remarkable is that the swords not only show the design of the cross in the shape of the handle, but also in tracery what is believed to be an imitation of the svastika, that ancient Aryan symbol which was probably the first to be made with a definite intention and a consecutive meaning. The pottery is all handmade, and the bulk of the objects excavated are cinerary urns, usually found full of burnt bones. These vary from 12 to 18 inches in height. Their decoration is confined to a band round the upper part of the pot, or often only a projecting flange lapped round the whole rim. A few had small handles, formed of pierced knobs of clay and sometimes projecting rolls of clay, looped, as it were, all round the urn. The ornamentation consists of dots, zigzags, chevrons or crosses. The lines were frequently made by pressing a twisted thong of skin against the moist clay, the patterns in all cases being stamped into the pot before it was hardened by fire. See Archaeology, and see, also Lord of Bury, Prehistoric Times 1900. Sir J. Evans, Ancient Bronze Implements of Great Britain 1881, Chartres Age to Bronze in France, Bronzing, a process by which a bronze-like surface is imparted to objects of metal, plaster, wood, and sea. On metals a green-bronze color is sometimes produced by the action of such substances as vinegar, dilute nitric acid and sal ammoniac. An antique appearance may be given to new bronze articles by brushing over the clean bright metal with a solution of sal ammoniac and salt of sorrel in vinegar, and rubbing the surface dry, the operation being repeated as often as necessary. Another solution for the same purpose is made with sal ammoniac, cream of tartar, common salt and silver nitrate, 
With a solution of platinum chloride almost any color can be produced on copper, iron, brass or new bronze. According to the dilution and the number of applications, articles of plaster and wood may be bronzed by coating them with size and then covering them with a bronze powder, such as Dutch metal, beaten into fine leaves and powdered. The bronzing of dung barrels may be effected by the use of a strong solution of antimony trichloride, BRONZIONO, IL, the name given to Angelo A. Lelori 1502-1572, the Florentine painter. He became the favorite pupil of J.D.A. Pontormo. He painted the portraits of some of the most famous men of his day, such as Dante, Petrarch and Boccaccio. Most of his best works are in Florence, but examples are in the National Gallery, London, and elsewhere. B.R.O.N.Z.I.D. A member of the pyroxene group of minerals, belonging with enstatite and hypersthene to the orthorhombic series of the group, rather than a distinct species, it is really a ferriferous variety of enstatite which owing to partial alteration has acquired a bronze-like submetallic luster on the cleavage surfaces. Enstatite is magnesium metasilicate, MgCO3, with the magnesia partly replaced by small amounts up to about 5 of ferrous oxide, in the bronzite variety, milligrams.faceo3. The ferrous oxide ranges from about 5 to 14, and with still more iron there is a passage to hypersphene. The ferriferous varieties are liable to a particular kind of alteration known as Schillery's Oxion, which results in the separation of the iron as very fine films of oxide and hydroxides along the cleavage cracks of the mineral. The cleavage surfaces therefore exhibit a metallic sheen or Schiller, which is even more pronounced in hypersthene than in bronzite. The color of bronzite is green or brown, its specific gravity is about 3.23, varying with the amount of iron present. Like enstatite, bronzite is a constituent of many basic igneous rocks such as norites, gabbros, and especially peridotites, and of the serpentines which have been derived from them. It also occurs in some crystalline schists. Bronzite is sometimes cut and polished, usually in convex forms, for small ornamental objects, but its use for this purpose is less extensive than that of hypersphene. It often has a more or less distinct fibrous structure, and when this is pronounced the sheen has a certain resemblance to that of cat's eye. Masses sufficiently large for cutting are found in the norite of the Kupferberg in the Fichteldeberge, and in the serpentine of Krabat near Lebanon Styria. In this connection mention may be made of an altered form of enstatite or bronzite known as bastite or Schiller spar. Here, in addition to Schiller's Oxion, the original enstatite has been altered by hydration and the product has approximately the composition of serpentine. In color bastite is brown or green with the same metallic sheen as bronzite. The typical locality is based in the Rudolfel, Harsh, where patches of pale grayish-green bastite are embedded in a darker-colored serpentine. This rock when cut and polished makes an effective decorative stone, although little used for that purpose. LJS brooch, or brooch from the Ifar, brooch, originally on hull or bodkin, a spin is sometimes called a brooch, and hence the phrase, to brooch a barrel, see broker, a term now used to denote a clasp or fastener for the dress provided with a pin, having a hinge or spring at one end, and a catch or loop at the other. Brooches of the safety pin type fibulae were extensively used in antiquity, but only within definite limits of time and place. They seem to have been unknown to the Egyptians, and to the Oriental nations untouched by Greek influence. In lands adjacent to Greece, they do not occur in Crete or at Hisarlik. The place of origin cannot as yet be exactly determined, but it would seem to have been in Central Europe. Towards the close of the Bronze Age, 
somewhat before 1000 BC. The earliest form is little more than a pin, bent round for security, with the point caught against the head. One such actual pin has been found, in its next simplest form, very similar to that of the modern safety pin in which the coiled spring forces the point against the catch. It occurs in the lower city of Mycenae, and in late deposits of the Mycenaean age, such as at Encomi in Cyprus. It occurs also though rarely in the Terramar deposits of the Po Valley, in the Swiss lake dwellings of the later Bronze Age, in central Italy, in Hungary and in Bosnia. Figure 1. From the comparatively simple initial form, the fibula developed in different lines of descent, into different shapes, varying according to the structural feature which was emphasized. On account of the number of local variations, the subject is extremely complex, but the main lines of development were approximately as follows. Towards the end of the Bronze Age the safety pin was arched into a bow, so as to include a greater amount of stuff in its compass. In the older Iron Age or Hallstatt period, the bow and its accessories are thickened and modified in various directions, so as to give greater rigidity, and prominences or surfaces for decoration. The chief types have been conveniently classed by V.04P.0642 Mondlies in four main groups. According to the characteristic forms, either wire of the catch plate is hammered into a flat disc, on which the pin rests figure 2II. The bow is thickened towards the middle, so as to assume the leech shape, or it is hollowed out underneath. Into the boat form, the catch plate is only slightly turned up, but it becomes elongated, in order to mask the end of the long pin figure 3. III. The catch plate is flattened out as in group I but additional convolutions are added to the bow figure 4. IV. The bow is convoluted but the convolutions are sometimes represented by knobs. The catch plate develops as in group II. Figure 5. For further examples of the four types. See Antiquities of Early Iron Age in British Museum. Page 32. Among the special variations of the early form. Mention should be made of the fibulae of the geometric age of Greece with an exaggerated development of the vertical portion of the catch plate figure 6. Illustration, figure 3. Type II, with turned up and elongated catch plate. A, leech, fibula, B, boat, fibula, C, variation of, boat, fibula. The example shown in figure 7 is an ornate development of type II. Above, in the later Iron Age or early Lotani period the prolongation of the catch plate described in the second and fourth groups above has a terminal knob ornament, which is reflexed upwards at first slightly figure 8, and then to a marked extent, turning back towards the bow. A far-reaching change in the design was at the same time brought about by a simple improvement in principle, apparently introduced within the area of the Lotani culture. Instead of a unilateral spring that island of one coiled on one side only of the bow as commonly in the modern safety pin the brooch became bilateral. The spring was coiled on one side of the axis of the bow, and thence the wire was taken to the other side of the axis and again coiled in a corresponding manner before starting in a straight line to form the pin. Once invented, the bilateral spring became almost universal, and its introduction serves to divide the whole mass of ancient fibulae into an older and a younger group. With the progress of the Lotani period 301 BC the reflection of the catch plate terminal became yet more marked, until it became practically merged in the bow figure 9. Meanwhile, the bilateral spring described above was developing into two marked projections on each side of the axis. In order to give the double spring strength and protection it was given a metal core, and a containing tube. When the core had been provided the pin was no longer necessarily a continuation of the bow, and it became in fact a separate member, as in a modern brooch of a non-safety pin type. 
and was no longer actuated by its own spring. The T-shaped or cross-bow fibula was thus developed. During the first centuries of the empire it attained great size and importance figures 10-12. The form is conveniently dated at its highest development by its occurrence on the ivory diptych of Stilicho at Monza C.A.D. 400. In the tombs of the Frankish and kindred Teutonic tribes between the 5th and 9th centuries the crossbar of the T becomes a yet more elaborately decorated semicircle, often surrounded by radial knobs and a chased surface. The base of the shaft is flattened out, and is no less ornate figure 13. At the beginning of this period the fibula of King Childric AD 481 has a singularly complicated pin fastening. So far we have traced the history of the safety pin form of brooch. Concurrently with it, other forms of brooch were developed in which the safety pin principle is either absent or effectually disguised. One such form is that of the circular medallion brooch. It is found in Etruscan deposits of a fully developed style, and is commonly represented in Greek and Roman sculptures as a stud to fasten the cloak on the shoulder. In the Roman provinces the circular brooches are very numerous, and are frequently decorated with inlaid stone, paste or enamel. Another kind of brooch, also known from early times, is in the form of an animal. In the early types the animal is a decorative appendage, but in later examples it forms the body of the brooch to which a pin like the modern brooch pin is attached underneath. Both of these shapes, namely the medallion and the animal form, are found in Frankish cemeteries, together with the later variations of the T-shaped brooch described above. Such brooches were made in gold, silver or bronze, adorned with precious stones, filigree work, or enamel, but whatever the richness of the material, the pin was nearly always of iron. The Scandinavian or northern group of T-shaped brooches are in their early forms indistinguishable from those of the Frankish tombs, but as time went on they became more massive, and richly decorated with intricate devices perhaps brought in by Irish missionary influence, into which animal forms were introduced. The period covered is from the 5th to the 8th centuries. Illustration, Figure 9, a defibula of the Lotani period, showing the development of the reflex terminal, and the bilateral spring, the T-form the medallion form, and occasionally the animal forms occur in Anglo-Saxon graves in England, in camp the medallion form predominates, the Anglo-Saxon brooches V.04P.0643 were exquisite works of art, ingeniously and tastefully constructed, they are often of gold, with a central boss, exquisitely decorated, the flat part of the brooch being a mosaic of turquoises, garnets on gold foil, mother of pearl, and sea arranged in geometric patterns, and the gold work enriched with filigree or decorated with dragon skin gravings. The Scandinavian brooches of the Viking period AD 800-1050 were oval and convex, somewhat in the form of a tortoise. In their earliest form they occur in the form of a frog-like animal, itself developed from the previous Teutonic T-shaped type, with the introduction of the intricate system of ornament described above. The frog-like animal is gradually superseded by purely decorative lines. The convex bowls are then worked ashear with a perforated upper shell of chased work over an undershell of impure bronze, gilt on the convex side. These outer cases are at last decorated with open crown-like ornament and massive projecting bosses. The geographical distribution of these peculiar brooches indicates the extent of the conquests of the Northmen. They occur in northern Scotland, England, Ireland, Iceland. Normandy and Livonia, the Celtic group is characterized by the penannular form of the ring of the brooch and the greater length of the pin. The penannular ring, inserted through a hole at the head of the long pin, 
could be partially turned when the pin had been thrust through the material in such a way that the brooch became in effect a buckle. These brooches are usually of bronze or silver, chased or engraved with intricate designs of interlaced or dragon squirk in the style of the illuminated Celtic manuscripts of the 7th, 8th and 9th centuries. The Hunterstone brooch, which was found at Hawking Craig in Ayrshire, is a well-known example of this style. Silver brooches of immense size, some having pins 15 inches in length, and the penannular ring of the brooch terminating in large knobs resembling thistle heads, are occasionally found in Viking hordes of this period, consisting of bullion, brooches and kufik and Anglo-Saxon coins buried on Scottish soil. In medieval times the form of the brooch was usually a simple, flat circular disc, with open center, the pin being equal in length to the diameter of the brooch. They were often inscribed with religious and talismanic formerly. The highland brooches were commonly of this form, but the disc was broader, and the central opening smaller in proportion to the size of the brooch. They were ornamented in the style so common on highland powder horns, with engraved patterns of interlacing work and foliage, arranged in geometrical spaces, and sometimes mingled with figures of animals. A.H. Small. The illustrations of this article are from Dr. Robert Forrars Relixicon. By permission of W. Spiemann, Berlin and Stuttgart, Brook, Francis 1724-1789, English novelist and dramatist, whose maiden name was Moore, was born in 1724. Of her novels, some of which enjoyed considerable popularity in their day, the most important were The History of Lady Julia Mandeville 1763, Emily Montague 1769 and The Excursion 1777. Her dramatic pieces and translations from the French are now forgotten. She died in January 1789. Brooke, F-U-L-K-G-R-E-B-I-L-E, first baron 1554-1628, English poet, only son of Sir Foot Grimmel, was born at Beauchamp Court, Warwickshire. He was sent in 1564, on the same day as his lifelong friend, Philip Sidney, to Shrewsbury School. He matriculated at Jesus College, Cambridge. In 1568, Sir Henry Sidney, President of Wales, gave him in 1576 a post connected with the Court of the Marshes, but he resigned it in 1577 to go to court with Philip Sidney. Young Greville became a great favorite with Queen Elizabeth, who treated him with less than her usual caprice, but he was more than once disgraced for leaving the country against her wishes. Philip Sidney, Sir Edward Deere and Greville were members of the Periopagus, the literary clique which under the leadership of Gabriel Harvey, supported the introduction of classical meters into English verse. Sidney and Grinnell arranged to sail with Sir Francis Drake in 1585 in his expedition against the Spanish West Indies, but Elizabeth peremptorily forbade Drake to take them with him, and also refused Grinnell's request to be allowed to join Leicester's army in the Netherlands. Philip Sidney, who took part in the campaign, was killed on the 17th of October 1586 and Grinnell shared with Deere the legacy of his books. While in his life of the renowned Sir Philip Sidney he raised an enduring monument to his friend's memory. About 1591 Grinnell served for a short time in Normandy under Henry of Navarre. This was his last experience of war. In 1583 he became secretary to the Principality of Wales, and he represented Warwickshire in Parliament in 1592-1593. 1597, 1601 and 1620. In 1598 he was made treasurer of 